It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yesterday, in part one of what's been a year-long investigation, the Sunday Times Insight team explained how, at the start of the pandemic, the government wasted five weeks sleepwalking into disaster. The whole policy of mitigation and herd immunity that the government was pursuing in March was seriously flawed. 1.5 million infections had spread across the country before Boris Johnson announced the first lockdown. The Prime Minister himself became seriously ill with Covid. On leaving hospital, he promised to do everything he could to avoid a second peak. So why did it happen all over again? His prevarication was actually growing exponentially, just like the virus. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Failures of State, Part 2. How Britain made the same mistake twice. By April 2020, the first wave of the virus was running rampant. Streets were empty. Hospitals were full. But, we were told, the UK had avoided the worst of it. Scenes like these from Italy wouldn't be repeated here in Britain. They're fighting a war here and they're losing. Wherever you go, people are on gurneys, in corridors, in meeting rooms. They're everywhere. Both Matt Hancock and the NHS would later claim that, that everybody had got the treatment that they required, which is not what we see in the statistics. Our NHS has not at any point been overwhelmed by coronavirus. And it's not what the doctors told us when we talked to them about what happened in those months of April and May during the first wave. That meant that lots of people thought, well... The NHS coped, so therefore it's all right, we can have loads of infection, what, what does it matter? But yeah. that was incredibly misguided. That's Jonathan Calvert, editor of the Sunday Times Insight team. After a year-long investigation, he's co-written a book cataloguing the failures of the state in handling the pandemic, along with his deputy, George Arbuthnot. The NHS had coped fine, therefore... There would be no big issue if infections rose again and, and the most important thing was the economy and, 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 and that should be prioritised. That was quite a powerful untruth. Hospitals are facing more pressure throughout the UK. If there was ever a good time to enter intensive care, this is not it. 
we uncovered statistical proof that thousands of elderly patients were denied access to intensive care when they most needed it. We got hold of some data which were collected from 65,000 people who were admitted to UK hospitals with the virus up to the end of May. It showed that just one in six COVID-19 patients who lost their lives in hospital during the first wave had been given intensive care treatment, which suggests that of the 47,000 people who died of the virus, an estimated 5,000, just one in nine, had received the highest critical care. There was a big drop in the proportion of hospitalised patients who were given intensive care before they died. So in the two middle weeks of March, 21% of those who died of the virus in hospital had been given intensive care treatment. Yet in April, that proportion dropped to 10%. And when the hospitals began dealing with far fewer patients in July, that went back up to 29%. So it gives you a real sense of the nightmare scenario in that April period. In late April, Boris Johnson had just returned to Downing Street after recovering from COVID. He'd promised not to risk a second major outbreak. But we all know what happened next. Within months, the New York Times had nicknamed Britain Plague Island. So today we're looking at what was happening behind the scenes. Towards the end of spring 2020, are there different views around the cabinet table and among the government's advisers? You know, who are the key players and what are their views about what the plan should be coming up for summer? I think towards the end of spring, there was a, a general level of caution amongst the cabinet. And, you know, the key advisers at the time were Matt Hancock and Michael Gove on the one side, who were very keen that um, any restrictions as we came out of lockdown should be released quite gradually. On the other hand, there was a lot of pressure from Conservative MPs who wanted the restrictions to be lifted as soon as possible to save the economy. And, and in a way, their poster boy was Rishi Sunak, the uh, Chancellor, who was very keen to get things going again. On the 4th of July, you know, what was termed Independence Day... The bulk of the restrictions were lifted. Boris Johnson and his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, popped out for a pint, sort of showed the nation was going back to some kind of normality. What led to that decision? What led to the decision to lift so many restrictions at once? There seemed to be anxiety to lift the restrictions very quickly, partly because other countries were also doing it. Because we'd allowed our number of infections to grow much higher than any other European country. It meant that, actually, we had to wait for longer before we could come out of the lockdown. But at the same time, there was all this pressure, both from the Treasury and from uh, Conservative MPs. The policy of the government has been disproportionate in response to this threat. There may, Madam Deputy Speaker, be a, a virus one day that threatens our very way of life. But this isn't it. The scientists at the time were advising the government that the way that they really would like it to be done was to um, lift one restriction at a time. But instead, the government decided to leap forward. It was a big shot in the dark. Well, despite being the most infected country in Europe, the UK announced plans to roll back some of its COVID-19 restrictions. We can now make life easier for people to see more of their friends and family and to help businesses get back on their feet and people back into jobs. From July 4th, pubs, restaurants and hairdressers in England will reopen. 
the effect on July the 4th was incredible. There was an explosion, you know, all of us who had been out in hibernation for months. It was almost as if life was returning completely to normal. Last night on an evening called Super Saturday, thousands spilled out onto the streets and it was chaos. If you looked at London's Soho, a very kind of popular place for people to go out on a Saturday night, it was just teeming with people, you know, hugging, kissing, shouting. Exactly the right conditions for the virus to thrive. And what's interesting about that particular date is that it also happens to coincide with the point at which the number of infections got to its lowest level since the pandemic began. And then they start rising again from that moment on. And it's so odd. You know, you're right, there was that sense of it being almost like a carnival, like at the end of a war and everybody's demob happy and everyone's rushing out onto the streets. Was there a sense behind the scenes before that, though, of any dissent? Because even the Prime Minister had seemed to understand that maybe... They had to tread carefully. Well, the sage scientists had really been trying to drill that point home to ministers. And sage were absolutely adamant of the importance of the two-metre social distancing rule. But Boris was being lobbied by the hospitality sector. Sure enough, he lifted the two-metre rule. All the way through that period, you can see he's siding with business rather than the scientists. The tragic thing about that is ultimately the hospitality industry was the one that was most damaged by that because they've ended up being shut down for almost the entire winter as a result of Boris ignoring his own scientists. And during that moment in in summer where the hospitality industry was going the other way when everything was reopening all at once, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, sort of became the poster boy for all of this. We will give everyone in the country an eat-out to help out discount. I wouldn't normally go out on a Monday. I'm using it twice today. He's the face of the eat out to help out scheme. It's his signature at the bottom of all of these policies and all of the posters. At the same time, we were also being advised to go back to work if we could. And you know, there were headlines threatening people who were, were less willing to at the time. What was going on behind the scenes? What was happening in number 10? Sunak had come up with this initiative. I wonder if we could talk about Eat Out to Help Out. Do you accept, as the Prime Minister did at the weekend, that Eat Out to Help Out might have contributed to the spread of COVID-19? I'm not sure that's exactly what the Prime Minister said. He said, in general, as far as hospitality is a source of transmission. I mean, the dangers of that are absolutely obvious. I mean, we understand that Allegra Stratton, who was his communications director at the time, could see that this was a risk and that he could be blamed Mm. if it helped cause a second spike. But he decided to press ahead anyway. He hadn't even run the scheme across his ministerial colleagues before it was really? <laughs> before it was unveiled in, in, in an interview with, with the Times. Was it not something that cabinet had discussed at length? And <laughs> apparently not, according to the sources. They, they hadn't. He'd just taken it upon himself to announce it. Perhaps because he knew that there were others in the cabinet who were far more cautious. Certainly, it caused a massive fuss amongst the Sage Committee, who were also not consulted on it. We already know that Boris Johnson, you know, has a reputation for not necessarily being across details. But Rishi Sunak certainly has the image of being somebody who is a details person, who goes to meetings, reads the briefs. How does he end up advocating anti-lockdown policies? He, he seemed to have a sort of myopic obsession with the short-term economy. 
and just hope against hope that limited control measures would reverse the virus, even though there's the little evidence to suggest it and all the scientists and experts were advising that it wouldn't be enough. They were absolutely, absolutely astonished by it because what they couldn't quite understand was that if you just wanted to stimulate the economy, then you would make the discount apply to takeaways. If you were being really cautious, you might just make it apply to takeaways. But that wasn't the case. And one sage source said to us, you could go to a restaurant, but people didn't typically before this scheme um, because they were being cautious. But it took a bribe from the Chancellor to make us go. This was a completely bonkers thing about it. It wasn't about support for restaurants. It was to break our fear, and it worked. We were obviously going to have to reverse that. It just seemed insane. I mean, that's astounding. It's it's so surprising that at the height of a pandemic, a policy like that wouldn't have been put through cabinet, sage, all the modelling people, all the people who work out behavioural patterns. They just would have, I mean, it sort of seems to cross the, the, the line of, of the Chancellor's remit because it does end up affecting health policy. And it did, although those particular studies showed afterwards from Warwick University that it had a major impact on infections. Yeah, I mean, he just, he just seemed to have, at that point, him and Johnson just, just seems to have abandoned any sense of caution. And certainly the, the, the sage scientists we've spoken to were just pulling their hair up. What sort of reaction was there amongst the Cabinet too when they realised that this policy was going ahead and none of them had been consulted? There's, there's a kind of pattern of behaviour through the rest of that period where certainly Gove and Hancock were, were concerned, and Hancock in particular, because he was responsible for the health service and they'd just gone through the most demanding experience of any of their careers. So he was extremely concerned by, by that approach. Was there any sense of why the Prime Minister had suddenly so completely changed his mind? I think during that period there was a feeling of wishful thinking that the virus had gone. Mm. So if you eat out to help out was through the whole of August. Even before then, Johnson had been imploring people to go back to work if they possibly could. And it was all leading up to bringing schools and universities back in September. And he was promising that things could be back to normal entirely by November. It is my strong and sincere hope that we will be able to review the outstanding restrictions and allow a more significant return to normality from November at the earliest, possibly in time for Christmas. In time for Christmas was his words. And I think they believed that they could now manage the virus. There were certain pockets, like, for example, the city of Leicester had um, infection rates going up. And they were handling that with localised restrictions. But all the data that was coming out suggested that the infections were steadily rising. And by the end of August, when Boris went for a holiday in, uh, in Scotland with his fiancée, Carrie, the infection rates had started to become alarmingly high and the R had been breached without a doubt. By the first few days of September, it, it had got to around about 1.7, which was the worst case scenario that had been warned about in a paper which Patrick Valance had commissioned back in July. And it predicted that under that scenario, you could have as many as 119,000 
deaths in a second wave. It turns out to be incredibly accurate. If you if you imagine that at this moment, we've probably had around about 140,000 deaths. So in that time, there's been about 85,000 deaths. So we're not that far off the worst case scenario that they predicted. And of course, we've had a long, long, long lockdown, and that wasn't part of their prediction. The report itself showed polling, which showed that uh, a significantly higher proportion of the public was suspicious of lockdown being eased. And people wanted to stay in lockdown because they actually feared the relaxing of restrictions. And that actually people were in favour of the, the approach that had been adopted in places such as New Zealand and Australia, which was to keep the virus down to tiny, tiny levels. In fact, almost COVID zero in the case of New Zealand. Was there also a sense from the scientists of the dangers of letting the virus get out of control again in terms of mutant strains? Yes, this, I mean, this was a very important warning from that time. Coming up, why those warnings went unheeded. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So by September, there are fears that a second wave was imminent. What was happening in Downing Street during this period? Well, the sage scientists, um, including Witty and Valens, could see that infections were rocketing. If they had made the mistake in the first wave to believe that you could allow the infections to grow and there would be some herd immunity, they'd abandoned that completely. The higher the number of infections grew, the longer the lockdown, the worse it would be for the economy, the more people would die. It was the worst of both worlds. And so at that time, they started to lobby the government for a circuit breaker lockdown, a short lockdown, which would just get number of infections down to levels that might be controlled with contact tracing. Was the government listening? Initially, there seems to, Boris Johnson does seem to have listened to the advice of the scientists. 
And in fact, newspapers were being briefed that, that there would be a circuit breaker. And then Rishi Sunak intervened and held a meeting with the Prime Minister on the Friday evening. Sunak was concerned that, that such a move would be damaging for the economy. And so out of that meeting came an extraordinary meeting. So the government is advised by a lot of its own scientists. But what they decided to do was hold a Zoom call on the Sunday evening with the Prime Minister present, with the Chancellor present, with a number of other experts who were not part of the SAGE umbrella, who held a different view as to how we might go forward and cope with the pandemic without having to go into short lockdowns. Who were those experts? So calling into the Zoom call were Professor Sunitra Gupta, who was a professor from Oxford. I think that the epidemic has largely come and is on its way out. Do we or should we act on a possible worst-case scenario? She had claimed previously that up to half the British population had been infected, and she claimed in May that the epidemic was on its way out. There's no evidence right now of what's called a second wave, because that's about the impact... So the impact. Prime Minister's wrong, then? And then there was also Professor Carl Hennigan, who um, only that morning had been on television saying that there wasn't a second wave, even though... Infections by then had quadrupled since July. I know that the death toll is very high. Uh, it's not extremely high if you compare us to countries like Belgium, Netherlands or the UK. And the third speaker was Anders Tegnell, Sweden's top epidemiologist, whose strategy, of course, had been very controversial. The streets of Sweden's capital are quiet. A second wave of COVID is sweeping through Stockholm. It didn't escape as authorities predicted it would. And had led his country to suffer 15 times more deaths and significantly more economic damage than its Scandinavian neighbours at the time. So at this stage in September, was there any reason to believe that these three scientific experts were in a better position to judge what was happening than all the members of SAGE? There wasn't, but what they put forward was an alternative theory and the alternative theory was that since COVID predominantly causes death in the elderly and the vulnerable, then you could have a policy where you continue to keep the economy open while you protect the elderly and the vulnerable. It was misguided because you couldn't possibly allow um, infections to get as high as they did. But it seems to have struck a chord with Johnson that weekend because what happened after that meeting, well, two things happened after that meeting. One was he decided that he wasn't going to go for a circuit breaker lockdown. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Patrick Valance, the government chief scientific advisor, and I'm here with uh, Chris Whitty. The chief and the other was that the government's two chief scientists, Valance and Whitty, took this unusual step of the next morning holding their own press conference. By reminding you that this disease spreads by droplets, by surface contact. To tell the nation just how dangerous the situation was and then that soon there would be 400 deaths a day again. And yet nothing happened. No, it was, it was a reversion back to that kind of herd immunity approach that they'd so vehemently denied they'd ever adopted in March. The SAGE scientists, just before that, they'd addressed 
the herd immunity approach and looked at the evidence that might support it and had found it to be completely groundless. Only 6% of the UK population at that point had gained antibodies against the virus after seven months of the epidemic and 57,000 deaths. So trying to get to 60% or higher to achieve herd immunity, the cost of that was all too clear. Also, the, the viability of adopting a policy where you try and seal off vulnerable and elderly from the rest of the population and just seemed very hard, hard to see how it could be sustainable. And certainly no country in the world had, had, had even attempted it. And yet, despite that alarming press conference from Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance, despite the warnings from SAGE, there wasn't a circuit breaker lockdown in September. In fact, the second lockdown didn't come until the 31st of October, more than a month later. What finally prompted that decision? The scientists we talked to could be forgiving about the first wave. It was a difficult decision to go to lockdown. They found it completely unforgivable. The government made the same mistake again. The government was trying to keep a grip on it. By the end of October, it was becoming clear that um, it had got to the stage where the NHS was going to be overrun and would not be able to cope. There was a meeting, Johnson, Sunak, Gove and Hancock, and they all listened to a presentation from Sir Simon Stevens, the head of the NHS, who had a very simple and clear message that hospitals would definitely be overrun in every part of England within weeks if nothing was done to stop the rate of infections. In fact, Gove later wrote in the Times, and this is what he said, he said, that afternoon we were confronted with what would happen to our hospitals if the spread of the virus continued at the rate it was growing. Unless we acted, the NHS would be broken, not just administratively at full stretch, but physically overwhelmed, every bed, every ward occupied, all the capacity built in the Nightingales and requisition from private sector too. He added, all the arguments against lockdown came up against this harsh, brute reality. There are more people being treated for COVID in hospitals throughout the UK than at any point in the pandemic. Health workers are back in the eye of the storm. And you've got to remember that when Whitty and Valance had warned of this, they were mocked. They were told that they were being the doctor's gloom and doom because yes. they, they were accused of exaggerating. And actually their predictions were incredibly accurate because that's exactly what happened. They were warning of 200 deaths a day by November, which now, having lived through the winter, seems like you know, quite a small number. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Honourable Lady. Uh, Around this time, I mean, Rishi Sunak said... The claim that our action was too late is, in the words of the government's own medical advisers, a misapprehension, because there is no perfect moment at which to enact measures which have far-reaching and damaging consequences for the people and businesses of our country. And we should only enact such measures, Mr Speaker, when it becomes truly unavoidable. Basically sort of seemed to believe that, you know, you should wait until the NHS was absolutely on the brink of being overwhelmed and that's when you bring in lockdown. Was that, you know, perhaps the misapprehension that the government ended up making, that you wait until it's already on the brink of disaster. That does seem to have been the view at the time, because in that way you keep the economy open for longer. It was a view that 
it's very difficult to understand how they could have held it because all the experience from the first wave and from other countries around the world showed that you just cannot allow the infections to get that high. And, and there, were, there, there were economic studies by the, the World Bank that showed this as well. The only way to avoid long lockdowns was to keep infections under check at an early stage. We've more or less, in certain parts of the countries, have been in lockdown for the whole of the winter. And that long lockdown was avoidable. It didn't need to happen. It is an absolutely tragic mistake which has left to thousands of excess deaths and has placed our economy in an even worse position. So it's very difficult to understand their argument at the time. And it is articulated at the time. I mean, if you look back at times, Rishi Sunak is mocking of the opposition. Mr Speaker, it is also entirely false of the party opposite to claim that if we only did what they suggested, things would somehow be different. Do you know, I think to this day, I think both George and I would say, uh, we don't understand his thinking. We then moved out of the national lockdown again in early December. At this stage, is, is the cabinet split on these decisions? Is there a clear case of hawks and doves? Certainly, as we understand it, there has been a fairly consistent split between Gove and Hancock and Sunak. And certainly, as we understand it, Dominic Cummings as well was, at that point, had converted to the more cautious approach, the more dovish approach. And so it does illustrate how much influence Sunak had gathered, considering, you know, he'd, you know, in, at the beginning of the year, he was, you know, a fairly junior figure who few people had heard of. But by the end of the year, he had become clearly the second most powerful person in Britain. The government then, you know, became a national obsession, really, talking about Christmas. And the government had to U-turn on much of its planning for Christmas. And early January, we eventually entered the third lockdown, because of the new variant. If Boris Johnson deserves much of the blame for the lateness of the first lockdown, how big a role does Rishi Sunak play in creating the circumstances for this new variant to emerge? Boris also shares a great deal of responsibility because, you know, ultimately he's the one who makes the decisions. But a sage source that we spoke to says that Rishi Sunak bears the most responsibility for the second wave. Uh, which is a, a serious charge because the first mm. wave cost 55,000 deaths up to July the 4th and the second wave has now caused 85,000 deaths and counting. Boris Johnson has, you know, he went on the Andrew Marr show on Sunday the 3rd of January and, you know, for months he's been calling Keir Starmer Captain Hindsight and speaking to the Andrew Marr show he said... The retrospectoscope uh, is a uh, magnificent uh, instrument. But Except actually, you had the report. No, you had the report. You didn't actually, need a retrospectoscope. Actually, you had the prediction. No, no. You know, I suppose a lot of people would say this was unprecedented. He'd argue these were decisions nobody had had to make before and hindsight is always twenty twenty. What would you make of that defence? I mean, one of the other astonishing things is if you look at the three late lockdowns, it actually suggests that he was getting worse in his decision-making. So at the first lockdown in March 2020, there were less than 7,000 COVID patients in hospital. Mm. At the second point of lockdown, there were around 14,000 COVID patients in hospital. At the third lockdown on January the 4th, there were almost 30,000 
COVID patients in hospital. So wow. his prevarication was actually growing exponentially, just like the virus. What happens next? I mean, yesterday you mentioned that the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice group have been asking for a statutory inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic. Is that likely? The lawyers representing bereaved families who've lost people to COVID-19 are going to seek a judicial review to try and force an inquiry and have an inquiry sooner rather than later. I don't see it's in the government's interest to have an inquiry, but I think the rest of the country would probably want an inquiry because I think we will accept that this might happen again sometime in the future and we certainly do need to learn from our mistakes, which were many. They've hired a couple of human rights lawyers who represented the bereaved families at Hillsborough, the Grenfell Tower disaster and the Manchester bombings. The lawyers say that the Prime Minister's actions during the pandemic have left the government vulnerable to civil claims for negligence and also the violation of the British people's human rights. Under the European Convention of Human Rights, people have a right to expect their leaders to protect their lives. They also actually believe that um, Johnson may well have committed the criminal offence of gross negligence manslaughter. The lawyers point out that specific passage in Johnson's speech on the 27th of April. We must also recognise the risk of a second spike, the risk of losing control of that virus and letting the reproduction rate go back over one. Because that would mean not only a new wave of death and disease, but also an economic disaster. And so therefore they say, you know, he, he, he knew it, he had the tools, but he failed to act. When asked about the prospect of an inquiry, a government spokesman said, we are focused on protecting the NHS, saving lives, and starting to cautiously ease restrictions. As we have previously said, there will be an appropriate time in the future to look back, analyse and reflect on all aspects of this global pandemic. We cannot comment on potential legal proceedings. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot from the Sunday Times Insight team. Their new book, Failures of State, the inside story of Britain's battle with coronavirus, will be published on March the 18th. Today's episode was produced by James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. We'll have part three of the Insight investigation, looking at the origins of the virus later in the week. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.